Hello, and welcome to Family Folk Tales from the Nashville Public Library. I'm Susan Poulter, a librarian at the Main Library. Today I'll be reading Part 1 of The Story of Two Sisters Who Were Jealous of Their Younger Sister. This is Part 15 of our stories from The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. Once upon a time, there reigned over Persia a sultan named Khosrushah, who from his boyhood had been fond of putting on a disguise and seeking adventures in all parts of the city, accompanied by one of his officers disguised like himself. And no sooner was his father buried, and the ceremonies over that marked his accession to the throne, than the young man hastened to throw off his robes of state, and calling to his vizier to make ready likewise, stole out in the simple dress of a private citizen into the less-known streets of the capital. Passing down a lonely street, the sultan heard women's voices in loud discussion, and peeping through a crack in the door, he saw three sisters sitting on a sofa in a large hall, talking in a very lively and earnest manner. Judging from the few words that reached his ear, they were each explaining what sort of men they wished to marry. "'I ask nothing better,' cried the eldest, "'than to have the sultan's baker for a husband. "'Think of being able to eat as much as one wanted "'of that delicious bread that is baked for his highness alone. "'Let us see if your wish is as good as mine.' "'I,' replied the second sister, "'should be quite content with the sultan's head cook.' What delicate stews I should feast upon! And as I am persuaded that the sultan's bread is used all through the palace, I should have that into the bargain. You see, my dear sister, my taste is as good as yours. It was now the turn of the youngest sister, who was by far the most beautiful of the three, and had, besides, more sense than the other two. As for me, she said, I should take a higher flight. And if we are to wish for husbands, nothing less than the sultan himself will do for me. The sultan was so much amused by the conversation he had overheard that he made up his mind to gratify their wishes, and turning to the grand vizier, he bade him note the house, and on the following morning to bring the ladies into his presence. The grand vizier fulfilled his commission, and hardly giving them time to change their dresses, desired the three sisters to follow him to the palace. Here they were presented one by one, and when they had bowed before the sultan, the sovereign abruptly put the question to them. Tell me, do you remember what you wished for last night when you were making merry? Fear nothing, but answer me the truth. These words, which were so unexpected, threw the sisters into great confusion. Their eyes fell, and the blushes of the youngest did not fail to make an impression on the heart of the sultan. All three remained silent, and he hastened to continue. Do not be afraid. I have not the slightest intention of giving you pain. And let me tell you at once that I know the wishes formed by each one. You, he said, turning to the youngest, who desired to have me for a husband, shall be satisfied this very day. And you, he added, addressing himself to the other two, shall be married at the same moment to my baker and to my chief cook. 
When the sultan had finished speaking, the three sisters flung themselves at his feet, and the youngest faltered out, O sire, since you know my foolish words, believe, I pray you, that they were only said in joke. I am unworthy of the honor you propose to do me, and I can only ask pardon for my boldness. The other sisters also tried to excuse themselves, but the sultan would hear nothing. No, no, he said, my mind is made up. Your wishes shall be accomplished. So the three weddings were celebrated that same day, but with a great difference. That of the youngest was marked by all the magnificence that was customary at the marriage of the Shah of Persia, while the festivities attending the nuptials of the sultan's baker and his chief cook were only such as were suitable to their conditions. This, though quite natural, was highly displeasing to the elder sisters, who fell into a passion of jealousy, which in the end caused a great deal of trouble and pain to several people. And the first time that they had the opportunity of speaking to each other, which was not till several days later at a public bath, they did not attempt to disguise their feelings. Can you possibly understand what the sultan saw in that little cat, said one to the other, for him to be so fascinated by her? He must be quite blind, returned the wife of the chief cook. As for her looking a little younger than we do, what does that matter? You would have made a far better sultana than she. Oh, I say nothing of myself, replied the elder. And if the sultan had chosen you, it would have been all very well. But it really grieves me that he should have selected a wretched little creature like that. However, I will be revenged on her somehow. And I beg you will give me your help in the matter, and to tell me anything you can think of that is likely to mortify her. In order to carry out their wicked scheme, the two sisters met constantly to talk over their ideas, though all the while they pretended to be as friendly as ever towards the sultana, who, on her part, invariably treated them with kindness. For a long time no plan occurred to the two plotters that seemed in the least likely to meet with success. But at length the expected birth of an heir gave them the chance for which they had been hoping. They obtained permission of the sultan to take up their abode in the palace for some weeks and never left their sister night or day. When at last a little boy, beautiful as the sun, was born, they laid him in his cradle and carried it down to a canal which passed through the grounds of the palace. Then, leaving it to its fate, they informed the sultan that instead of the son he had so fondly desired, the sultana had given birth to a puppy. At this dreadful news, the sultan was so overcome with rage and grief that it was with great difficulty that the grand vizier managed to save the sultana from his wrath. Meanwhile, the cradle continued to float peacefully along the canal till, on the outskirts of the royal gardens, it was suddenly perceived by the intendant, one of the highest and most respected officials in the kingdom. Go, he said to a gardener who was working near, and get that cradle out for me. The gardener did as he was bid, and soon placed the cradle in the hands of the intendant. The official was much astonished to see that the cradle, which he had supposed to be empty, contained a baby, which, young though it was, already gave promise of great beauty, 
having no children himself, although he had been married some years, it at once occurred to him that here was a child which he could take and bring up as his own. And bidding the man pick up the cradle and follow him, he turned towards home. My wife, he exclaimed as he entered the room, heaven has denied us any children, but here is one that has been sent in their place. Send for a nurse, and I will do what is needful publicly to recognize it as my son. The wife accepted the baby with joy, and though the intendant saw quite well that it must have come from the royal palace, he did not think it was his business to inquire further into the mystery. The following year, another prince was born and sent adrift, but happily for the baby, the intendant of the gardens again was walking by the canal and carried it home as before. The sultan, naturally enough, was still more furious the second time than the first. But when the same curious incident was repeated in the third year, he could control himself no longer, and to the great joy of the jealous sisters, commanded that the sultana should be executed. But the poor lady was so much beloved at court that not even the dread of sharing her fate could prevent the grand vizier and the courtiers from throwing themselves at the sultan's feet and imploring him not to inflict so cruel a punishment for what, after all, was not her fault. Let her live, entreated the grand vizier, and banish her from your presence for the rest of her days. That in itself will be punishment enough. His first passion spent, the sultan had regained his self-command. Let her live, then, he said, since you have it so much at heart. But if I grant her life, it shall only be on one condition, which shall make her daily pray for death. Let a box be built for her at the door of the principal mosque, and let the window of the box always be open. There she shall sit, in the coarsest clothes, and every Muslim who enters the mosque shall spit in her face in passing. Anyone that refuses to obey shall be exposed to the same punishment himself. You, vizier, will see that my orders are carried out. The grand vizier saw that it was useless to say more, and, full of triumph, the sisters watched the building of the box and then listened to the jeers of the people at the helpless sultana sitting inside. But the poor lady bore herself with so much dignity and meekness that it was not long before she had won the sympathy of those that were best among the crowd. But it is now time to return to the fate of the third baby, this time a princess. Like its brothers, it was found by the intendant of the gardens and adopted by him and his wife, and all three were brought up with the greatest care and tenderness. As the children grew older, their beauty and air of distinction became more and more marked, and their manners had all the grace and ease that is proper to people of high birth. The princes had been named by their foster father, Baman and Pervise, after two of the ancient kings of Persia, while the princess was called Perizad, or the child of the genie. The intendant was careful to bring them up as befitted their real rank, and soon appointed a tutor to teach the young princes how to read and write. And the princess, determined not to be left behind, showed herself so anxious to learn with her brothers that the intendant consented to her joining in their lessons, 
and it was not long before she knew as much as they did. From that time, all their studies were done in common. They had the best masters for the fine arts, geography, poetry, history, and science, and even for sciences which are learned by few. And every branch seemed so easy to them that their teachers were astonished at the progress they made. The princess had a passion for music and could sing and play upon all sorts of instruments. She could also ride and drive as well as her brothers, shoot with a bow and arrow, and throw a javelin with the same skill as they, and sometimes even better. In order to set off these accomplishments, the intendant resolved that his foster children should not be pent up any longer in the narrow borders of the palace gardens where he had always lived. So he bought a splendid country house a few miles from the capital, surrounded by an immense park. This park he filled with wild beasts of various sorts, so that the princes and the princess might hunt as much as they pleased. When everything was ready, the intendant threw himself at the sultan's feet, and after referring to his age and his long services, begged his highness's permission to resign his post. This was granted by the sultan in a few gracious words, and he then inquired what reward he could give to his faithful servant. But the intendant declared that he wished for nothing except the continuance of his highness's favor, and prostrating himself once more, he retired from the sultan's presence. Five or six months passed away in the pleasures of the country, when death attacked the intendant so suddenly that he had no time to reveal the secret of their birth to his adopted children. And as his wife had long been dead also, it seemed as if the princes and the princess would never know that they had been born to a higher station than the one they filled. Their sorrow for their father was very deep, and they lived quietly on in their new home, without feeling any desire to leave it for court gaieties or intrigues. One day the princes, as usual, went out to hunt, but their sister remained alone in her apartments. While they were gone, an old Muslim devotee appeared at the door and asked leave to enter as it was the hour of prayer. The princess sent orders at once that the old woman was to be taken to the private oratory in the grounds, and when she had finished her prayers was to be shown the house and gardens and then to be brought before her. Although the old woman was very pious, she was not at all indifferent to the magnificence of all around her, which she seemed to understand as well as to admire. And when she had seen it all, she was led by the servants before the princess, who was seated in a room which surpassed in splendor all the rest. "'My good woman,' said the princess, pointing to a sofa, "'come and sit beside me. I am delighted at the opportunity of speaking for a few moments with so holy a person.' The old woman made some objections to so much honor being done her, but the princess refused to listen and insisted that her guest should take the best seat, and as she thought she must be tired, ordered refreshments. While the old woman was eating, the princess put several questions to her as to her mode of life and the pious exercises she practiced, and then inquired what she thought of the house now that she had seen it. Madam, replied the pilgrim, 
one must be hard indeed to please to find any fault. It is beautiful, comfortable, and well-ordered, and it is impossible to imagine anything more lovely than the garden. But since you ask me, I must confess that it lacks three things to make it absolutely perfect. And what can they be? cried the princess. Only tell me, and I will lose no time in getting them. The three things, madam, replied the old woman, are first the talking bird, whose voice draws all other singing birds to it to join in chorus. And second, the singing tree, where every leaf is a song that is never silent. And lastly, the golden water, of which it is only needful to pour a single drop into a basin for it to shoot up into a fountain, which will never be exhausted, nor will the basin ever overflow. Oh, how can I thank you, cried the princess, for telling me of such treasures. But add, I pray you, to your goodness by further informing me where I can find them. Madam, replied the pilgrim, I should ill repay the hospitality you have shown me if I refuse to answer your question. The three things of which I have spoken are all to be found in one place, on the borders of this kingdom towards India. Your messenger has only to follow the road that passes by your house for twenty days, and at the end of that time he is to ask the first person he meets were the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water. She then rose, and bidding farewell to the princess, went her way. The old woman had taken her departure so abruptly that the princess Parazad did not perceive, till she was really gone, that the directions were hardly clear enough to enable the search to be successful. And she was still thinking of the subject and how delightful it would be to possess such rarities when the princes, her brothers, returned from the chase. "'What is the matter, my sister?' asked Prince Baman. "'Why are you so grave? Are you ill? Or has anything happened?' Princess Parazad did not answer directly, but at length she raised her eyes and replied that there was nothing wrong. But there must be something, persisted Prince Baman, for you to have changed so much during the short time we've been absent. Hide nothing from us, I beseech you, unless you wish us to believe that the confidence we have always had in one another is now to cease. When I said that it was nothing, said the princess, moved by his words. I meant that it was nothing that affected you, although I admit that it is certainly of some importance to me. Like myself, you have always thought this house that our father built for us was perfect in every respect, but only today I have learned that three things are still lacking to complete it. These are the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water. After explaining the peculiar qualities of each, the princess continued, It was a Muslim devotee who told me all this, and where they might be found. Perhaps you will think that the house is beautiful enough as it is, and that we can do quite well without them. But in this I cannot agree with you, and I shall never be content until I have got them. So counsel me, I pray, whom to send on this undertaking. My dear sister, replied Prince Baman, that you should care about the matter is quite enough, 
even if we took no interest in it ourselves. But we both feel with you, and I claim as the elder, the right to make the first attempt, if you will tell me where I am to go and what steps I am to take. Prince Pervise at first objected that, being the head of the family, his brother ought not to be allowed to expose himself to danger. But Prince Baman would hear nothing, and retired to make the needful preparations for his journey. The next morning Prince Baman got up very early, and after bidding farewell to his brother and sister, mounted his horse. But just as he was about to touch it with his whip, he was stopped by a cry from the princess. Oh, perhaps after all you may never come back. One never can tell what accidents may happen. Give it up, I implore you, for I would a thousand times rather lose the talking bird and the singing tree and the golden water than that you should run into danger. My dear sister, answered the prince, accidents only happen to unlucky people, and I hope that I am not one of them. But as everything is uncertain, I promise you to be very careful. Take this knife, he continued, handing her one that hung sheathed from his belt, and every now and then draw it out and look at it. As long as it keeps bright and clean as it is today, you will know that I am living. But if the blade is spotted with blood, it will be a sign that I am dead, and you shall weep for me. So saying, Prince Baman bade them farewell once more, and started on the high road, well-mounted and fully armed. For twenty days he rode straight on, turning neither to the right hand nor to the left, till he found himself drawing near the frontiers of Persia. Seated under a tree by the wayside, he noticed a hideous old man, with a long white moustache and beard that fell almost to his feet. His nails had grown to an enormous length, and on his head he wore a huge hat, which served him for an umbrella. Prince Baman, who, remembering the directions of the old woman, had been since sunrise on the lookout for someone, recognized the old man at once to be a dervish. He dismounted from his horse and bowed low before the holy man, saying by way of greeting, "'My father!' May your days be long in the land, and may all your wishes be fulfilled. The dervish did his best to reply, but his moustache was so thick that his words were hardly intelligible, and the prince, perceiving what was the matter, took a pair of scissors from his saddle pockets, and requested permission to cut off some of the moustache as he had a question of great importance to ask the dervish. The dervish made a sign that he might do as he liked, and when a few inches of his hair and beard had been pruned all round, the prince assured the holy man that he would hardly believe how much younger he looked. The dervish smiled at his compliments and thanked him for what he had done. Let me, he said, show you my gratitude for making me more comfortable by telling me what I can do for you. Gentle dervish, replied Prince Baman, I come from far and I seek the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water. I know that they are to be found somewhere in these parts, but I am ignorant of the exact spot. Tell me, I pray you, if you can, so that I may not have traveled on a useless quest. While he was speaking, the prince observed a change in the countenance of the dervish, 
who waited for some time before he made reply. My lord, he said at last, I do know the road for which you ask, but your kindness and the friendship I have conceived for you make me loth to point it out. Why not, inquired the prince, what danger can there be? The very greatest danger, answered the dervish. Other men, as brave as you, have ridden down this road and have put me that question. I did my best to turn them also from their purpose, but it was of no use. Not one of them would listen to my words, and not one of them came back. Be warned in time and seek to go no further. I am grateful to you for your interest in me, said Prince Baman, and for the advice you have given, though I cannot follow it. But what dangers can there be in the adventure which courage and a good sword cannot meet? And suppose, answered the dervish, that your enemies are invisible. How then? Nothing will make me give it up, replied the prince, and for the last time I ask you to tell me where I am to go. When the dervish saw that the prince's mind was made up, he drew a ball from a bag that lay near him and held it out. If it must be so, he said with a sigh, take this, and when you have mounted your horse, throw the ball in front of you. It will roll on till it reaches the foot of a mountain, and when it stops, you will stop also. You will then throw the bridle on your horse's neck without any fear of his straying, and will dismount. On each side, you will see vast heaps of black stones, and will hear a multitude of insulting voices, but pay no heed to them, and above all, beware of ever turning your head. If you do, you will instantly become a black stone like the rest, for those stones are in reality men like yourself, who have been on the same quest and have failed, as I fear that you may fail also. If you manage to avoid this pitfall, and to reach the top of the mountain, you will find there the talking bird in a splendid cage, and you can ask of him where you are to seek the singing tree and the golden water. That is all I have to say. You know what you have to do and what to avoid. But if you are wise, you will think of it no more, but return whence you have come. The prince smilingly shook his head, and thanking the dervish once more, he sprang on his horse and threw the ball before him. The ball rolled along the road so fast that Prince Baman had much difficulty in keeping up with it, and it never relaxed its speed till the foot of the mountain was reached. Then it came to a sudden halt, and the prince at once got down and flung the bridle on his horse's neck. He paused for a moment and looked round him at the masses of black stones with which the sides of the mountain were covered, and then began resolutely to ascend. He had hardly gone four steps, when he heard the sound of voices around him, although not another creature was in sight. "'Who is this imbecile?' cried some. "'Stop him at once!' "'Kill him!' shrieked others. "'Help! Robbers! Murderers! Help! Help!' "'Oh, let him alone!' sneered another. And this was the most trying of all. "'He is such a beautiful young man. I am sure the bird in the cage must have been kept for him.' At first the prince took no heed to all this clamor, but continued to press forward on his way. Unfortunately, this conduct, instead of silencing the voices, 
only seemed to irritate them more, and they arose with redoubled fury in front as well as behind. After some time he grew bewildered, his knees began to tremble, and finding himself in the act of falling, he forgot altogether the advice of the dervish. He turned to fly down the mountain, and in one moment became a black stone. That was part one of the story of two sisters who were jealous of their younger sister, from the Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. Special thanks to Ginger Sands for our theme music. You can find more of Ginger's music at iTunes or on her website at www.gingersands.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's story, send me an email. I can be reached at susan.polter, that's P-O-U-L-T-E-R, at nashville.gov. Thanks for listening.